Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, Vectrex owners' prayers are answered. Your chance to own one of the 90s most obscure consoles. And we celebrate the C64 community with Jeff Scott. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen Neo Geo, a visual history? Now, of course, the Neo Geo, the system that manages to captivate gamers who are maybe in awe of its power or its price tag back in the day. And if, like me, you're one of those people who always dreamed about owning one but never got the chance, Neo Geo, a visual history, is the next best thing. You can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 394, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to the podcast that every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games, reminiscing about the classic systems, the classic games, bringing you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week, and of course bringing you a fascinating interview on the podcast every single Friday. Basically, if you know this sound, then this is the podcast for you. Oh, what is that? Come on, Joe. Is that the Famicom? No. Famicom Disk System. No, it's not. No, it's not. What is that? Call yourself a, call yourself a Sega fan. Oh, it's the Mega CD. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> the startup sound to the Mega CD. I thought then you were going to slip up. So I thought you were going to say it's the Sega CD. Nah, nah. Which is obviously what the American... See, the American one's got a different sound. The American one's this. You were ready for the Sega me. CD. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I should be saving these for the Christmas quiz, really, which is now only three months away, but there you go. <laughs> so that's what we do on this podcast. We geek out about all things retro, and of course, it's been a very busy week uh, for news, so we'll bring you up to speed on all that in just a minute. And uh, I'm getting ready for an amazing event next week that I'm really excited about, because, I mean, summers for us are generally quite busy. It's turned out over the last couple of years that, uh, through kind of no fault of our own, we've generally gone to events probably individually rather than all together. <laughs> Ravi was uh, over in Norway last month at Retro Mesa. Um, I'm actually off to a great little Amiga event that's in a place called Spoleto in Italy next weekend. Now, this is happening uh, on a Sunday, actually, Sunday the 17th of September. It's a day called Amiga Passione. And this is completely different to any of the show I've been to. Basically, it's a really small, intimate group. It's a completely free event as well where you come along, you enjoy some systems. It's kind of in the uh, the vineyard area of Italy. So, you know, there's nice wine, there's nice food flowing, and, you know, it's going to be a really nice intimate event by the looks of it. And it's all outdoor as well. So um, it basically looks like something, you know, completely different to any other retro event that I've been to before. It looks so, um, um, quite interesting. So uh, I used to, you know, be into the demo scene and check out stuff, mm. and there was always a Spoletium, uh, which was like the Italian demo party. And obviously, uh, you know, 150 people would attend there. And um, that was in exactly the same region. So it's probably got a lot of the same people that were there. And that was around 2000 and uh, 1999. And they always had some good good demo releases coming out from there. Yeah, cause, I mean, it's an area of Italy that I haven't been to before. But I mean, I've been checking some videos out. It looks beautiful. Because um, I'm a big fan of Italy, you know, many go for the pizza and wine, if I'm honest. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it looks really good. And I think it's, Generally, the people that have been there, 
go back every year. Like Alistair Brimble's coming out there. He messed me said, I think it's like his third time he's been there now. Uh, Mev Dink's coming out as well. So it really seems like a bit of a kind of hidden treasure. Yeah, and, so, and that's um, the uh, Passion Amiga guys who run the um, magazine then, I guess. Yes, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, that would make sense. So yeah, it was uh, Paolo from who runs the event he basically got in touch with me uh, asked if I want to come out and attend it I'm doing a little talk on the Sunday as well so uh, yeah it's just something different that you know a nice little way to end off the summer I think so if you're anywhere in that region or you can get out there um, I believe it is completely free entry as well so I'll link that up in our show notes if you want to come along I would uh, I'd get there early though because it only looks like a small little place but yeah so uh, looking forward to that and uh, of course today we're going to be celebrating another Commodore system the Commodore 64 now um, this is really interesting because We've talked about the C64 before. We've had guests on who've made movies about retro systems. Generally, when you find a movie like, you know, Bedrooms to Billions, you know, those kind of things, they celebrate the historical aspect of the systems more than anything else, don't they? Uh, yeah, they do. And they, they kind of look at the games and do a bit of nostalgia and reminiscing. And they're, they're really good because, you know, they're interviewing people from back in the day. But uh, the, yeah. the C64 was incredibly popular as well. Uh, the best-selling single computer model of all time. And uh, this is a new film that has literally just gone up for crowdfunding this week. And you can watch a 10-minute a preview for free on YouTube that, of course, I'll link up as well. It's a movie called I Adore My 64. Now, the difference about this is, rather than looking at, you know, how the Commodore 64 was made and the programmers that made the games back in the 80s, this is actually a celebration of the Commodore 64 community and what's happening now. So he's in a bit travelling around North America mainly, and he's so far he's spoken to uh, a few people that I'm sure you're familiar with if you're into the 64, Bo Zimmerman, uh, David Murray, the 8-bit guy, Anthony Becker, you know, from Agura Meditation, uh, Leif Bloomquist is in it as well. So this is really, it's looking at Commodore user groups, it's looking at new hardware, people that are making new software, and celebrating what the Commodore 64 community is in 2023 and uh, Jeff who is the guy behind this movie he's been a, a lifelong fan of the Commodore 64 but also he's been a, a movie maker for 25 years so that is one big difference between you know a lot of the kind of history videos you might have seen before and you know YouTube videos for example that the production quality of this is super high if you yeah. watch it it looks like it could be a TV program it, it did look really good like when they were interviewing people they were going into the towns and stuff and there was like this drone footage and yeah it, it looks really impressive from that preview that I've seen yes I mean obviously the Commodore 64 like you said such a big seller back in the day and uh, it's really a movie that honors its legacy and focuses on the community that's keeping it alive today so um, that is up for crowdfunding right now on Seed and Spark I'll link that up in our show notes it's got around 26 days left so if you want to get this movie over the line obviously you're going to hear all about it uh, with Jeff Scop who's going to be our special guest in around half an hour from now obviously we do a lot of reminiscing and you know talking about his memories of the Commodore 64 and a really you know interesting look at what the C64 community is today so hang around for that and if you want to back that on the uh, the crowdfunder I'll link that up in our show notes as well so let's get straight into this week's news stories it has been another busy seven days in the world of retro and uh, Ravi You've been talking about getting a Vectrex for years. And I've got to say, I think you've probably kind of missed the boat now to get a cheap Vectrex. I've given up. The because C systems are not getting, it, they're not getting any cheaper, are they? Well, if I get one, you know, it's probably going to break and then I'll have to get another one to repair it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of moving into the world of emulation now because maintaining a lot of these old machines, um, it's like kind of having an old car collection. And uh, mm. yeah, it's kind of like, I kind of like the idea of new hardware and stuff. Well, at the moment, there is a 
a bit of a shortage for Vectrex controllers, because apparently that is one thing that can break. Um, you know, these controllers, they, can, they attach to the front of the machine, don't they? Yeah. Um, and if you want a good condition, one of yours isn't working anymore, they can sell for, you know, up into the high hundreds, you know, mm. to get one in decent condition. But it turns out that someone has seen a bit of a, a space in the market for new Vectrex reproduction controllers. Yeah, so this is interesting. Like like you just said to Ravi, I think, I don't know how much a Vectrex sets you back now, but I know it was at least £400 a couple of years ago, and the controllers are, you know, half, if not more, of that cost. And, uh, yeah, a lot of them are failing, unfortunately. You know, they're like 40 years old now, the Vectrex. Um, and it's weird because they're actually bolted to the system, aren't they, with the Vectrex? Because yeah. obviously, for those who don't know, the Vectrex is essentially, it's a, a CRT TV, isn't it? Um, with the game console it's all one unit and then the controllers are bolted into the front and it's kind of like a cassette kind of like draw which they like sit in don't they but yeah this is really interesting so you can buy a reproduction you know modern controller uh off a german website called norths.de for 95 euros um right so quite a bit cheaper uh than what they seem to be going for and they're boasting that they're you know they're higher quality um so you know they've still got the full analog control stick there um and they boast you know arcade style buttons so the buttons do look a little bit different the original vetrax has got like the more kind of smooth concaved buttons whereas these are a little bit more kind of like arcade rounder you know kind of like smarties kind of buttons the only way i can describe what you'd find them. on a standard arcade what you'd machine, find on yeah. a standard arcade yeah. machine um so a little bit different but yeah 95 euros still not massively cheap but if you've got a perfectly good working Vectrex, but it's got a dodgy controller, or you want a second player controller because, you know, there is two controller ports on them uh, to bolt in there, uh, this could be a, you know, a cheaper, not not cheap, but cheaper alternative. And it, as Ravi just said, hopefully this one won't break so soon, you know, if you're buying a brand new crafted one. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking on eBay at the moment, uh, um, and I can't find any Vectrex controllers on their own. Oh wow! Um, probably because, like you said, I mean, the, the kind of attached to the front of the system. But there are some Vectrex on here, and one sold two weeks ago in Blackpool for two hundred pounds. Oh wow! Which isn't bad actually. But then you go a bit further down the list. There's another one here that sold for uh, one thousand four hundred. <laughs> so there does seem to be quite a, a variation. I imagine, though, the thing is that the probably. There's one here. I'm in a Vectrex arcade game console controller with games overlays fully working. Went for £365 at the start of September. Pretty much all of these are collection only, though, which I imagine for a system that is essentially like it's an all-in-one in a monitor, Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of limits you. You don't want to ship these across the country or across the world. Well, you talk yeah. about yeah. Uh, overlays there as well, and I'm just noticing on this site, artshop.de, well, arcadeartshop.de, um, they seem to be doing overlays as well for the original controllers. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so, you know, you can stick them on, on the top of the controllers. And these new ones look like they have maybe different sizes and dimensions. So uh, maybe they'll produce their own set of overlays uh, for certain games with these ones as well. Because I can imagine they're not like cross-compatible. Yeah, I'm... I think it's cool as well that they're making reproductions of something. that It, it is quite niche, but I think there's probably... Uh a need for other controllers like this. Because I got the, um, you know, the reproductions of the Atari Jaguar Pro controllers yeah. that came out probably about four or five years ago now. I bought a couple of those because the originals of those, I mean, if people haven't seen them, they're basically the, the six-button version of the Atari Jaguar controller with their uh, shoulder buttons that Atari made, I think, around 95. Didn't make very many of them, and they've always been kind of, you know, collector's items for Jaguar fans. 
Um, the originals go for a lot of money, but someone actually did a, a modern reproduction of them that looks identical apart from having the Atari logo on there a couple of years ago and sold them at you know an affordable price. So I managed to get a couple of those in my collection. And there's stuff like I got um, an Acorn Archimedes computer a few years back, and it didn't come with the mouse, mm. but it turns out the mouse actually goes for about £100 on its own. Oh, wow. On eBay, because it's like a custom connector. You can get adapters to use, you know, standard PC ones. But um, yeah, there, I think there is stuff like that. And someone mentions in the uh, the comments here on this article on time extension, they'd like a reproduction of the the Philips CDI controller. Because again, their, their controllers are quite hard to find now. And if you do manage to get a CDI without, you know, one of the kind of game controllers, finding one of those on eBay is going to set you back quite a bit. So I think that's often something that people don't realise. You'll buy a system... And if it hasn't got the, all the parts, sometimes they can set you back almost as much as the system itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting looking at the Vetrex listings right now. They are just all over the place. But if you read the descriptions and yeah. stuff, it depends what they come with. And it's like some are, like you say, they're selling for a £1,000. And it's because it's they've got the inlays and stuff, like Ravi was just saying. And it's crazy how much more expensive. I know they're not necessarily parts, but these things that are meant to come with it originally how much more expensive mm. it can make it. Because like you say, you can go on there and get a buy it now for like 300 quid, but that is literally the yeah. unit with a controller, you know. And if you're willing to drive across the country. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you yeah. want it with all, you know, a couple of games and all the inlays and, you know, all the manuals and stuff like that, which came with it or even with the box, yeah, you, straight away you're tripling that. It's crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't be trusting a yodel to deliver a Vectrex to my <laughs> <Yeah>. front door. <laughs> Booting it over the back door for you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you have got a Vectrex, I mean, the thing is about this, even if your controllers aren't broken, I think these kind of things that don't come along every day, so it's probably worth stocking up if mm. you want to keep your systems going a long time. So it looks like they're going to be available any day now, so I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, have you got your blankie nearby, Joe? I have. I've got my blankie in my butt butt. <laughs> yeah, going to make you feel all, all cosy. Got from the fire. <laughs> you fan of Rugrats back in the day? I of was. Of course oh, I, I was. wasn't at all. And anything with talking babies can go away. I hated, <laughs> I hated Look Who's Talking as well. God, what is it with, like, talking babies and people's fascination? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there a Look Who's Talking movie where it was a dog? Or did I make oh, that God, up? I don't know. I didn't even I don't know about what that. was that a sequel. <laughs> yeah, look who's talking eight or something straight to video for a <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, but Rugrats, I mean, obviously it was a, you know, a tea time institution, you know, when he came back from school back in the day. Uh, ran from 91 to 96. Obviously still gets repeated to this day, I think. Um, but there was actually a few video games back in the day. And there is a new one that's coming out that is uh, very, very retro inspired. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. Like you say, Rugrats ended in. 96 there was a couple of films mm. after that and there was a, a spin-off series where they were teenagers i think around 2000 2001 yeah, that was weird that yeah one. that was a bit that. weird um <laughs> but like yeah i, I mean I, I enjoyed rugrats i was a kid you know i was probably the, the demographic age group for it when it was on tv um but yeah 30 years later they've released there was a couple of games for rugrats for the ps1 and the n64 but this is a uh, coming out uh early next year we can expect this this is Rugrats Adventure in Gameland, and it's a brand new game. This isn't like, you know, an unreleased game like the McDonald's game, the Grimace birthday or anything like that. This is like brand new game, and it's coming to us. Um, mixed games and wall ride games have developed this and produced this, and then it's going to be available through limited run. But what's really interesting about this is that there is actually going to be two versions of it. And this looks really cool. Um, it's a straight-up platformer, very in the vein of uh, the DuckTales for the NES and Mega Man. Yeah. Um, and you could play as the four original 
Rugrats. So what they or oh, don't tell me Phil, Lil, Tommy, and Chucky. Um, I knew you could name them. I knew I knew I could. <laughs> um, you can play as them four, and it's like you know character select, and they all have different abilities, and there's six stages to kind of play through with it's, them. It's interesting how they've done this one. So on on the modern release. Yes. They've got the HD version, but yeah. also you can switch to the old school mode. Yes. So yeah. uh, you know, it's got that kind of like Sonic Generations thing where you could where you could go back, but also that old school mode is the NES release. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly what Ravi just said. So it is gonna be coming to the NES, fully playable on the NES with the eight bit style graphics. But if you buy it for the modern systems, um, which it hasn't confirmed, but I imagine Xbox, PlayStation, PC, Switch, you can press, you know, I imagine it'll be the select or the options button and it changes it to these beautiful HD hand. They're, and they're based graphics. on the cartoon, aren't they? They're, yeah, they're, it's yeah. like drawn exactly like yeah. how it used to look. Yeah, yeah. And it's all hand drawn as well, it says. Um, so it looks absolutely beautiful. So awesome that you can get it on the NES, you know, full NES release. Um, it's all fully endorsed by Nickelodeon as well. Who you know owned Rugrats. Rugrats, I think, was one of their original shows when the Nickelodeon launched. But yeah, it's it, you get the HD version, which I think is wicked. And it's like you say, you can switch between them instantly. It does also say that it is going to be co-op, but I don't know if that's like at one time or if it's going to be like Super Mario World where you kind of take it in turns. You know, when you right, die, yeah, it's yeah. the next players go. Maybe maybe online co-op with the uh, yeah with the maybe with the modern HD consoles. one yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it looks wicked. Obviously, if you get the NES version, it's going to come in the old NES box and everything. That looks really cool. Interesting. Like you say, Rugrats not been around for a while, but obviously, obviously it hits the nostalgia. Well, I think, I think it's good that they're addressing old school systems. Obviously, yeah. I hate the game, but um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's good to see that there's releases uh, covering all these all these areas. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I quite like that. You know, um, get some new games for your library if you're yeah. a collector. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Joel be running f- through the front door, throwing his school back down <laughs> early next year, sitting on his NES playing this. Absolutely. No, I think I'll probably end up getting it on Xbox or Switch or something because I, I do like the look of those uh, those HD graphics as well. So, yeah, we can switch between them by, by the yeah, side yeah, of this. Like, so, yeah, just press yeah. a button and you can play the, the old school graphics on your, your Xbox, you know, really push that power of the Xbox series. Absolutely. So. Put the 8-bit <laughs> graphics into HD mode. <laughs> it's funny, I was playing the Atari 50 collection on my PlayStation 5 the other day and I was like, I got a bit, you know, this system is actually like the most powerful console on the market. Your watch yeah. is probably more powerful. <laughs> yeah, it's mental. Exactly, yeah. The first thing I played on my Xbox Series X when I got it was the Contra collection. I played Contra. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just, what am I doing? <laughs> Scaled up into glorious 4K. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if I get hold that Rugrats game, I will uh, link up that article. You can check out the trailer as well. It looks really cool. Now, uh, this is something that um, I don't think I've ever got any hope of having in my collection. You thought the Vectrex was hard to get hold of now. What about owning an ACAN system? Now, I must admit, I'd never even heard of this one before. I, I'd never heard of this one. And um, it's interesting because the other day, I had like a really crazy thought of like, I'd love to have every console that was ever released within my lifetime. So I'm like, mm. okay, so I need a Jaguar. And I was like, this is going to get pretty expensive if I decide to do that. Yeah, there's a, a fair amount of crap there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think about it, like, you're like, oh, there's an Apple Pippin. Like, you start <laughs> thinking, you start thinking of all these stupid consoles that cost loads of money. I'd never heard of the ACAN till this week, um, which is an incredibly rare Taiwanese 16-bit console that launched in 1995, um, which was an absolute flop because apparently it just mm. couldn't compete with the uh, 
with the uh, PS1 and interestingly the Sega Saturn, you know, in Taiwan. It was big in that part of the world, wasn't it? It yeah, was big in that part of the world, yeah. And it only ever had 12 games released for it in the first couple of months of it being out before it got before it got canned. And for those who, you know, who haven't seen it before, it looks a little bit like a Super Nintendo and it is 16-bit graphics, you know, 2D kind of graphics. Um, Controller-wise, a little bit of a hybrid between a Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo controller. It, it just looks like a black Super Nintendo, doesn't it? Yeah. But the reason we're talking about this is there is one up on eBay and it's the same seller, interestingly, who sold the Castlevania Sympathy of the Night demo for the game.com last year, which we covered, which was like a, um, you know, like a developer's cartridge that, that you know, yeah. got found and released. So now he's got a Super Acon. Uh, sorry, it's interesting, the background in this company as well, Funtech Entertainment Corporation, because oh, okay. this uh, this Acon actually caused the collapse and failure of the whole oh, wow. uh, <laughs> subsidiary. So, um, yeah. I'm looking at the games and I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh, really? That bad? But yeah, they must um, have gone all in, you know. Yeah, it is based on the uh, the same chipset as the Sega Mega Drive and the Neo Geo, interestingly. Um, but it's currently on bid uh, with I want to see how long with four days and nine hours remaining at the point of recording this. So it ends mm. on this coming Monday, so two days after the show goes out, three days after the show goes out, Monday the eleventh. Currently on nine hundred and ninety dollars with eighteen bids. Yeah, um, that's gonna go. Probably up to two grand then, but yeah, I mean, it does come, it does come with the box, bit of cardboard. Is it? It's you know? got 12, 12 games that were released for it. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't come with any games though. It's listing, so you can't, so you can't even play it. You can't go out I and bet wait for the an, games. I bet there's no ever drive for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> get your A can ever drive out. <laughs> yeah, but I'm looking. There, there is a great little video here that you can watch um, that I'll link up in our show notes as well uh, by Low Scoreboy, who basically runs through the the games available on the system. Um, I've not heard of any of these. I mean, there might be kind of regional titles like Formosa Duel, a game called Single Fighter that looks like a Street Fighter 2 ripoff. Okay. Uh, Sango Fighter, on... I think that's what it's called. Sango, yeah. Okay, and yeah, well, it looks like it came out on the on the PC as well by the looks of it, and he's got a little side-by-side demo. Actually looks like it priced pr- pretty well on the ACAN, um, but it kind of reminds me of, you know, the Atari Jaguar, instead of having Mortal Kombat, you had Katsumi Ninja. <laughs> you know, the, these kind of games that were yeah. like rip-offs of like, you know, Big game. There's one called Speedy Dragon on here as well. That is a you know, it's pretty looks like a pretty decent kind of side scrolling. Yeah, you know what? It, I'm looking through the same video now. It doesn't look yeah. that bad. It just looks like no, a SNES. <laughs> to yeah, be honest. There's just no just no games you'd recognise on here, right? No guess. games you'd recognise, isn't it? What, three, four late three, four years later, five years later really, in terms of the technology that it's boasting. Yeah. And uh, the pad doesn't look uh, amazingly nice. Like the D-pad on the pad looks like it could be pretty horrible. It's one of those ones where it's all just raised. And, yeah, it looks. Yeah. It, I can just tell from the pictures it looks spongy. Yeah, yeah, I can as well. I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I really want that in my collection. <laughs> I, mean, I love anything like this. Anything that's what only got like a handful crap. of games. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm exactly. looking at it and it's $200 shipping to our area, Dad. Right. So, yep. you know... <laughs> You're, all, that ain't gonna you're on 1100 yeah. already. <laughs> Stay away from the wine on Friday night. <laughs> so uh, no drunk e-bang for me this weekend. So uh, yeah, it looks really interesting. Though, if you want something very rare in your collection, I'm just waiting to go on the patrons hangout end of the month and someone's bought it. Yeah. 
Yeah, we should know our patrons. There'll be someone in there who's gone, oh, I've got one of those. Of course I have. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want something really obscure in your collection, you can get yourself an ACAN uh, on eBay right now. So I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, talking about patrons, of course, our patrons hangout is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we do these um, end of the month usually. Last Sunday of the month, traditionally, is the day for our patrons hangout. So that'll be coming up on uh, September the 24th. Only a couple of weeks away. And actually, speaking of stuff we do for our patrons, we also do a bonus podcast once a month, of which we've just done episode number 37, uh, the Retro Hour After Hours podcast, where we're talking about our favourite licensed games. Now, I love doing the main podcast, but the After Hours, always such a giggle, isn't it, doing that show? Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, when you suggested licensed games, I thought you only meant movie license. But luckily, it's all kind of <laughs> licensed titles as well, because, yeah, there's some really bad movie licensed games out there as well. <laughs> of which I picked a couple in my list. So uh, if you want to check that out, if you join us as a gold member or above on Patreon, um, you will get access to all 37 episodes of that. So lots of listening, you know, a couple of years worth, you'll unlock. You also get the normal podcast ad-free. You get extra bonus patrons content every week. We'll do an extra two or three news stories in every single episode. And really the main reason that you're joining us on Patreon is to support this podcast and make sure that we can keep going well into 2024 and beyond. And of course, we really appreciate all the support we get. We do have two new patrons who we'd like to induct into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. That is, of course, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And I'll let you guys induct them in. Hall of Fame. Who we got, Ravi? We have Mark Hill and Ramon who both joined us on Patreon over the last week. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join the wonderful Retro Hours patrons community, all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, there was one of our patrons a couple of weeks ago on one of our Hangouts who showed us something really cool. This was Matthew, who's a regular on the Hangouts. And he had a basically a, a mini pirate TV station playing around his house where he was streaming. I say streaming, but basically he was broadcasting over the air old episodes of Games Master and Bad Influence and watching them on his CRT TVs around his yeah, house. Yeah, he had a little UHF transmitter, uh, which is probably yeah. uh, illegal. <laughs> but um, we, we won't grasp yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, kind uh, of broadcasting in the area and then he could pick up stuff on, uh, on you know, the old aerial. And uh, that service has been turned off in the UK. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I, I did really enjoy watching Matthew demo that on our Hangout. And I did think, because, I mean, I've got a couple of CRT TVs in my house. And obviously, like you said, I mean, over-the-air analog television got shut off several years ago here. We're, you know, digital only now. Um, but I thought it would be cool if I could, because that was the way we watched them back then. And, I mean, it's all well and good watching Games Master on, you know, my my 4K TV. But it's not how I remember watching it as a kid. So I thought it would be quite cool if there's a way that you can kind of broadcast it. I mean, I looked at plugging a Chromecast into, like, one of my CRT TVs and watching it on YouTube, but then it's that the letterbox is on the side, the aspect ratio wasn't right. But if you want to see how to basically broadcast a retro TV channel in your house using the power of a Raspberry Pi, there is a great little demonstration video that's around 25 minutes long by a YouTuber called Irish Crack Party. Just to clarify, that is C-R-A-I-C. Yeah. Like the Irish Crack. It's, just, just to clarify it's really smart, this is. So... It- He's done it in a way that, I, you know, I don't think this is going to be public, publicly available. This is just a very specific project he's done for himself. And yeah. it's based on American cable TV. So it's not the kind of experience that we would have um, in the in the UK. You know, we'd have a total different one. But, um, you know, seeing the integration of teletext and stuff is, is pretty amazing. Now, the way that he's done this is he's got an lcd screen god damn it he should have had a crt but he's created this little unit um 
has an LCD in there. It also has a Raspberry Pi in there. It's got this little channel changer that is kind of custom built as well. So, you know, you can turn it with a dial and switch between the channels. Now, the cool thing about this is is the build that he's using. So there's a one called Pseudo TV, um, which is available where you can make your own TV channel. Is that for the Raspberry Pi then? This is it's for the yeah. Raspberry Pi, but it's also yeah. for I think the PC and stuff. It's uh, it works with Plex and Kodi, um, so you know it will find your streaming service and then it will take the videos out. But this guy, he decided no, that's that's too modern and that has stuff like buffering in there. Doesn't have adverts in there or or logos or it doesn't run in sync with the machine. So. In in C of course, he decided to write his own uh, piece of software, and this is pretty amazing. He's he's got commercial breaks in there, uh, running for like you know, in America they got a lot more commercial breaks than us, so it's running for a period of time. But it's also running. He decided when you know the format has a chapter in it, so like you've got a DVD film in there, and then the chapter comes in, and you change to the next one. That triggers. The commercial break but when the commercial break comes on a channel logo comes in there and then he thought let's get it even more complex so this is all working timed with the internal time of the machine but he also said uh yeah let's get it a bit more complicated and let's do it so we can have multiple channels on there we can kind of switch between them but also if it's the time period for like kids tv you're going to get kids' adverts, you know, later so on. So it's 3 p.m. you're going to get, yeah, you're going to be watching adverts for toys and stuff. Yeah, so he's yeah. he's created this basic unit that is constantly running this content and uh, has commercial breaks and gives you the whole kind of cable experience and how it's delivered. He's even got like an MTV-style channel on there with music videos. And you know what? I'm, and Beavis and Butthead. I miss that. You know, I miss sitting in a house just watching music videos uh, back in the days with my mates. Uh, you look at MTV now and it's all all trash. But um, yeah, that, that kind of music thing, I, I'd really love to have. I don't know if he's going to make this build available publicly, but... He should. Yeah, definitely. I love the idea of just having like one of the sources on your TV or something, just a constant streaming channel. Be good to see a British one uh, if they did like the old BBC with uh, you know no adverts, but um, yeah, or they did Channel Four late at night and <laughs> stuff like that, and then you had it like turn off and go to teletext on. Uh, you just want to watch Euro channels. Trash again? Oh like, yeah, well, yeah, I watch Euro Trash anyway. But Adam and Joe show, <laughs> all of that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I do love the idea of this. So basically, he's got, you know, it's a 24-hour, you know, stream, isn't it, of classic TV. And he can switch between the channels. That's what I think is really cool. Because, I mean, obviously, I've seen people build their own kind of fake TV channels at home. But the fact that he can basically switch between, you know, HBO on here and MTV, you know, these, these versions that he's made. Yeah. And it's all kind of running at the same time. So what you would have watched on MTV at 3 p.m. is what's on HBO at 3 and, p.m. And I'd be interested in watching the american cable tv experience you know because i mm. never really watched that apart from seeing videos on youtube and stuff you know i think it would be quite nice having you know if they created some kind of database it could be hard with copyrighted material and stuff but you know having access to the american one and then seeing what was going on in in germany or then checking the uk version it would it would be quite cool because, I mean, there are some Twitch channels that I watch like this. You introduced me to a great one, the uh, the old-timey computer show. Yes, yes, that's, um, that's And I, I, I keep that streaming in my office sometimes all day, and they just play a random selection of, like, you know, 80s and 90s 
computer and video games shows back to back. So it feels like a real TV channel. But often, you know, if I've got like my, my monitor on all day and I'm working in here for like five, six hours doing stuff, I don't want to constantly change YouTube videos all day. So having something like that stream, I think, is really good. So yeah, and he's even also if you just uh, kind of stream these on, on Twitch would be good. Well, he's got an algorithm in there which also picks what suited best for that time period and, and kind of like how a TV channel would be created. And uh, I kind of like the idea of, you know, we've got so much choice of content now, just having that like limited selection of a few channels and getting stuff mm. chosen for you is uh, sometimes a lot easier than scrolling through these endless lists of stuff. Yeah, so it looks very, very cool. Recapturing that old school TV experience. If you want to check that video out, I will put that in our show notes as well. Now, this one looks really exciting, um, and as soon as I saw this, I thought, God, this game looks right up Joe's street. This is an action side-scroller called Demon Claw. Now, I mean, there are a lot of these kind of retro-style games around at the moment, but the big thing about this is, not only is it coming out of modern systems too, but they're porting this to quite a few classic systems as well. Yeah, you're not, you're not wrong, Dan. You're not wrong. It's definitely mm. up my street. Um, yeah, Demon Claw. Um, very similar look to kind of... Um, Oh, I think it's called Demon's Crest, Gargoyle's Quest for the SNES, you know, kind of Mega Drive SNES, 16-bit style graphics, kind of dark, medieval-y fantasy kind of look, platformer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming to us. So we've actually had these guys on the show. They're called Bitbeam Cannon. Uh, they, yes. they We had them on about two or three years ago. They were behind Metro Siege and Cyberjack and big fans of the Amiga. Um, so this kind of started out as a, by the looks of things, an Amiga game. It was gonna. It's going to be on the Amiga. Um, yeah, I think they had a proof of concept demo that they were running yeah, when we interviewed them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now they've teamed up with NeoFid Studios, and they've been launching this as a um, a crowdfunder Kickstarter. Um, I'm not too sure when. It just says that next month. Is it next apparently. month is it? Yeah. And the aim is to, as well as getting this out on Amiga and modern consoles, you know, Xbox, which PS PS4, five, etc. It is also going to come, like I say, Amiga, Commodore, PC, and the Mega Drive, which, you know, this game absolutely 100% suits the Mega Drive, like the look of it, a very badass-looking Altered Beast, maybe. Uh, yeah, it reminded me of Altered Beast quite a bit, and interestingly, there is a little um, trailer video that you can watch. Now, I was reading the comments, and a couple of the comments on there are saying, this looks great for the Amiga, but it would be good to see a Mega Drive version, and they're like, no, watch this space. Yeah. But actually, if you listen to the music on this, check this out. This is, it sounds like a Mega Drive. Mm. But apparently that's the Amiga version by the, the looks of the comments. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think, a very good Mega uh, I think it needs to come so. out on a Nintendo system just so you can have yeah. Power Glove support. Um, <laughs> not work wicked with this. Well, I mean, you do joke, and there have been... I mean, I've been looking through the comments on this. People are very excited about it, but there's quite a lot of people going, hang on, why are you not bringing this out on the SNES? This will be perfect on the Super Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like the Super Nintendo gets overlooked a hell of a lot. For homebrew, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe it could be for licensing issues. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we get a lot of NES stuff. You know, the Rugrats game we were just talking about. Um, But there doesn't seem to be too many Super Nintendo releases. I mean, you get the odd re-release for Super Nintendo. Um, Like there was a Battletoads one not too long ago. And there was a Lion King and Aladdin one a couple of years ago and stuff like that. But they're re-releases of games that already exist. Um, You don't see to seem new homebrew kind of super nintendo or not homebrew you know what i mean new absolutely brand new games new releases new releases but this does a hundred percent if you showed me this with no context i'd assume it was a super nintendo game or a very nice mega drive game 
And um, and you mentioned the uh, soundtrack there as well. It's it's by Alistair Brimble, so um, oh, wicked. You know, uh, it's it's definitely going to sound good. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of these new games coming out that look incredible, but I just think, yeah, the fact the Super Nintendo always gets overlooked, I'm just not quite sure why. Is it a difficult system to program tell us, for? Tell, tell us in the comments. I bet somebody knows. Yeah. I, I, my yeah. vote is my vote is licensing issues. That's my vote. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you- but either way, I mean, this this looks like just top draw quality, yeah. doesn't it? So they're bringing this out on the Neo Geo as well. Oh, wicked. Interestingly. Yeah, so I mean, it's going to be Mega Drive, Amiga, PC, and Neo Geo as well. I mean, I'm looking at this and I think, you know, again, it's, you know, I've got a Neo Geo CD, which I know some people don't count as a proper Neo Geo. Would be nice if this came out on the CD system as well. But yeah, I mean, I just think it looks like a really polished arcade quality yeah it's old school i like the idea of the multiple weapons on the glove that he's got and um you know it's obviously got power-ups and stuff and then like that huge kind of um you know streets of rage one where you where you press a button and then just completely devastate everyone in there that like golden axe as well um it's got a lot of origins in those games and the look of it is is really nice with the uh scrolling yeah there's definitely definitely lots of influences there and like you say even with like some of the animations a very dragon punch street fighter even though the origins of it probably sit with golden axe streets of rage kind of style um it is a one kind of like it's not a belt scrolling beat em up it is just that one kind of level platformer beat em up mm. isn't it um but sometimes i mean i prefer belt scrollers but sometimes i you know i do like sit down and play and- one of these because you do get better platforming elements with these and I guess we're seeing the Amiga version, like they might have enhancements mm. for the other ones, you know. Um, uh, on the Geo enhancements. Yeah, or yeah, kind yeah. of more enemies or, or something like that. I do love the fact as well, though, Ravi, that now, you know, Amiga games have been ported to other systems <laughs> yeah. rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good yeah, point. Which is a cool thing to see. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Beam Cannon and the crew, if you want to check the uh, Kickstarter, that is coming very soon, but I'll uh, put the trailers in our show notes so you can check those out. And, of course, everything else we talk about, you don't have to Google around or search on your socials or anything. Just open the uh, the show notes on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com and you can click straight through. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, Jeff Scop, talking all about the Commodore 64 community in 2023 and his amazing new documentary, let's take a moment to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and of course it is a very long-running sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, our favourite VPN service, our wonderful mates at ExpressVPN. Now, of course, we've talked about ExpressVPN before. Everyone knows how it can protect your privacy and your security online, but something really good about having a VPN kind of a nice little byproduct of having one of these, is that you can actually unlock movies and TV shows that are normally only available in other countries. So if you're paying, you know, full whack for services like Netflix, who seem to put the prices up like every six months, then this will completely change your world. Because there is so much more out there than we get on the British Netflix. For example, I think I read that there are 100 different Netflix libraries all around the world. So just imagine all the extra content that you're normally missing out on. But I know you, Ravi, always take advantage of the global Netflix library yeah. with ExpressVPN. Well, not only Netflix as well. Like there's Hulu, um, you know, BBC yeah. iPlayer. And then I, I remember using it one for, uh, it's called YouTube TV, which is a service that's not available in the UK. But um, for streaming football, my God, it was good. <laughs> so I actually used ExpressVPN to go onto the uh, American servers and sign up for YouTube TV and then, uh, you know, watch football 720p 60 frames per second great quality that was but um 
you know, looking on uh, Netflix in America, there's, there's some interesting stuff, man. I've been uh, checking out Team America World Police, which is absolutely hilarious. If you've not seen it, you need to check that one out. Uh, the story of Pixar as well, the Pixar story, which is a really nice documentary. And one that was weird, when I was in Atlanta in America, I walked up a road and they said, it's closed. And I was like, oh, I need to get to this shop. And they're like, no, it's closed. I said, why? They're filming Undercover Brother 2. So I'd never checked that out. <laughs> but uh, now I can actually go check it out on the American Express VPN service. Yeah, so that's the thing. Express VPN on your system, you know, it works on all your devices too, doesn't it? You've got it on your phone, your consoles, your smart TV. You can have it on your router so you can, so you can just do your yeah, whole yeah. house, you know. And, and it's so quick, isn't it? I mean, you, you have it on, you don't even realise that it's connected yeah. in the background. Never any buffering, never any lag, stream in HD, no problem at all. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, why don't you try ExpressVPN and use our exclusive link. You'll really help out the podcast and you'll get our little present to you, three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a one-year plan. So head to expressvpn.com slash retro. That is expressvpn.com slash retro. I'll link that in our show notes as well. And a big thank you to ExpressVPN for their continued support of our podcast. Okay, next, we're going to be celebrating the Commodore 64 community in 2023 and finding out about this incredible new documentary, I Adore My 64, with this week's special guest, Jeff Scop. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest and... Uh, you know us. We love any excuse to talk about Commodore computers. You know, I've got to admit, even though I love all things retro, Commodore is really where my heart is. And today, we're going to be talking to someone who's making an incredible new documentary celebrating the Commodore 64. But, I mean, you might have seen a lot of documentaries about the 64 covering the history of it. This one's different. This one actually focuses on what's happening with the Commodore 64 today. Now, the campaign just launched this week. It's called I Adore My 64, and it's launched on Seed and Spark, and I'll link it up in our show notes so you can click through and support that today. And obviously, we'll hear more about that and uh, where the movies come from with the the maker of this new film. Let's welcome him on, Jeff Scarp. How's it going, Jeff? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about this, uh, what looks like an incredible new film. And I mean, obviously, if we're talking about the, the Commodore 64, it is nice to kind of get some some personal background, because you know, that's why we're all here, isn't it? You know, the, the nostalgia of it and uh, you know the fact that we can geek out a bit about these machines as well. So <laughs> I know that you've got some uh, some background with the Commodore 64. So what was kind of your your early experience with that machine and how did it impact you? Oh, well, um, I got a Commodore 64. I think I was 10 or 11 years old for Christmas. It's kind of an interesting story because I probably would have ended up with a VIC-20. But um, our family was away on vacation in Florida. We came back. There had been a huge snowstorm, and our entire house was flooded. Um, and my parents had hidden uh, this VIC-20, I believe, in the basement, and it got 
Bruin. So, <laughs> uh, you know, several weeks later through insurance money, um, it was replaced, but my dad decided, Hey, as long as we're getting a free replacement, why don't we upgrade? So that's how I ended up with, with a Commodore 64 instead of a VIC 20. So I count myself pretty fortunate in that way. And, um, yeah, right out of the gate, I just had a lot of good experiences with it. Uh, my first game cartridge, I think was, um, grid runner by the the venerable jeff minter and you know started started getting into basic programming a little bit and just really took to it and kept that machine like for a very long time i think all the way uh, almost to high school before it broke (laughs) and then uh i replaced it with a commodore 64c and i actually still have that machine today and it still works so in speaking personally, what are some of the most iconic games or software that you'd personally associate with your 64? Obviously, you mentioned, you know, Jeff Minter there. He was, you know, such an, a legend on that system. Anything else that kind of brings back the nostalgia for you? Oh, yeah. I think the number one uh, game of all time for me um, would not be the number one, g- one game for everybody else. But I tend to really like uh, adventure story driven um, games. So probably Below the Root, which is... Uh, sort of a lesser known title and then probably more of a, a well-known title would would be maniac mansion um mm. you know that's that's kind of an eminently popular story-driven adventure type of uh point and click game and yeah spent many many hours trying to figure that out and and uh never did get to the end of my own and i'm, I'm just too prideful to use <laughs> <laughs> to use a walkthrough. I'm like, I still think, oh yeah, someday I'm going to complete it. But um, yeah, I've really enjoyed those types of games. And in the early days too, this is, I guess, probably somewhat unusual. Um, I really enjoyed the Infocom text adventure series mm. and played that a lot, especially with a close friend of mine. Um, we just spent hours and hours trying to figure things out, often getting frustrated. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just tons of funs with the, f- tons of fun with those titles. I mean, the Commodore 64 had obviously lots of competitors on the market at the time. I mean, over in the, in the UK, Sinclair Spectrum was the main competitor and it sparked uh, many playground wars at school, you know, which machine was the best. And I know over in the US, you had, uh, you know, systems like, you know, obviously the uh, the Apple II and, you know, the IBM PC was coming through, Atari 400 and 800. I mean, what would you say the, the Commodore 64's strengths were? What made it so special compared to those contemporary machines that were around at the same time? Oh, I think in my mind, the graphics and sound really just blew anything else that that I saw out of the water. It's interesting how sort of regionalized your experiences can be um, if you're from that period of time. And when you're talking about home computers, like I never saw an, an Atari 400 or 800 in the wild uh, as I was growing up. And that's not to say that there weren't people out there that um, use them and love them. Mm. Um, I'm sure there were. Um, but where I'm from, which is like the Midwest, um, most of my friends, um, if they had a home computer at all, it was a Commodore 64. Or I had a few who had um, a, TI, a Texas Instruments TI-99 4A and um, a couple that had uh, the, the Coco. But, you know, just sitting down and, and um, using those machines, it's like this, this just isn't even close. It doesn't even compare. And I know during that era, too, the Apple II was really popular. And, but I think in all my years growing up, I ever in person only ever saw one 
one time. So, um, yeah, it was maybe on some levels, it's like my experiences with it were just more of a regionalized uh, thing and other people in other areas of, of the states, ex- you know, had more experiences with other machines. Um, but yeah, definitely the graphics and then the SID chip is, you know, it's just amazing. Nothing could really hold a candle to the music and sound effects that the Commodore 64 could produce. And then, of course, the price, right? The price was right. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that was important to my family for sure. <laughs> and I think it was uh, important to a lot of others out there when they were looking at entering the, the home computer market. Well, obviously, I mean, the Commodore 64, you know, became the, the best-selling single-model home computer of all time. So, uh, yeah, definitely had that big impact on the market. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, my first machine was a Commodore Plus 4 that was an 8-bit that Commodore released after the 64 um, that didn't have anywhere near the same impact. And, you know, I got that because, you know, <laughs> they were selling them off really cheap and my parents bought it at, like, a fire sale. Um, and obviously, we had the Commodore 128 that came out a couple of years later as well. But, I mean... Speaking of those 8-bit machines, I mean, why do you think those systems didn't have the same impact as the C64? Well, I think it's uh, probably a misread of the market. Um, You know, I'm definitely not a historian or an authority on the matter, but I think, you know, the the thing that really harmed the Plus 4 probably was its incompatibility with the 64. I do understand that there was a certain, you know, business intention behind it. And Bill Hurd, um, you know, he's taken a lot, a lot of, I think, unfair flack, um, you know, for the relative lackluster sales of the uh, Plus 4 and the other computers in that series. But if you, if you really stop and listen to him talk about why they made the decisions that they did or um, you mm. read his book, it really does make a lot of sense why they why he went the direction he and the rest of the team went the direction that they did and um you know some of it was out of his control it was people above him like like all of us at any of our jobs you know we can we can put our heart and soul into something but sometimes the people above us make decisions that we don't agree with and impact the outcome of those projects so you know and the 128 um i think that is a great machine there there um a lot of amazing things it can do, you know, and, and some levels it's, you know, sort of a four machines in one, you know, it it has so many different modes. Um, but I think it didn't sell as well as the 64, probably just because it wasn't a 64 (laughs) and the 64 was, was still selling during that time. You know, the 64, I think sold like into the early nineties. Um, and so it kind of, I think, cannibalized its own market so to speak Mm. that's my guess but um you know i think the 128 was again sort of designed to meet the need of the business market um with its 80 column mode and and some of the other features that it had but i think you know if you look back on the history of commodore they they just had a hard time capturing that market after the pets because the 64 was seen as you know, a video game machine on a lot of levels. And um, I just, I think they struggled from a branding perspective to get people to take them seriously as a, as a business computer, especially as the uh, IBM PC came into the market. Yeah, and I think every Commodore 128 that I've seen, so obviously you've got that Commodore 64 compatibility mode mm-hmm. in there, and they've pretty much all got worn G 
and O keys and six and four, where people have literally turned it on, mm. typed go 64, hit return, and then just used it as basically it's a Commodore 64. Um, just because you said, I mean, there's all that software out there, wasn't there? So mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah. you know, it was just really tempting for people just to use it as a C64. Exactly. Um, and obviously, I mean, as the 80s went on, I mean, you know, from your perspective and you know, from the research you've done, how do you think the Commodore 64 kind of shaped the gaming industry in the 80s? Well, I, I think that, and, and a lot of the interviewees in the film talk about this too, the ones we've interviewed up to this point. I don't think the Commodore 64 really gets the credit that it's due for the influence it had uh, in the development and history of video games. Um, there are so many people who are today involved in the industry because they started on the 64 and they either, uh, uh, you know, played it at home or played it at a friend's house. And a lot of the, and that's when a lot of them began experimenting with machine language programming. And, you know, that, uh, that's a special, <laughs> that takes a special kind of skill and, and dedication. But I think that sort of developed a generation of, programmers that went on to do great things, not only just in games, um, but uh, in other, you know, software and hardware design as well. So, you know, the sort of the barrier to entry was high because learning machine language is difficult. But, you know, um, when you take the time to do that, and I shouldn't talk about it as if I know, because I am not a machine language programmer. (laughs) But um, when you take the time to dedicate yourself to learning it, I think you develop a really high level skill set. And afterwards, any other language, you know, is really um, just not as difficult. So, um, yeah, I think in that way, the 64 had an impact on that on that early uh, game development market. And that's continued to pay dividends, you know, all to, to those companies all the way up to today. So yeah, um, you know, video games are more popular now than they've ever been. They bring in more money now than they've ever, ever have. And I think, you know, when people think about the history of the video game industry, they're more likely to think about Nintendo and Sega and sort of forget about the precursors that led into those consoles even being possible. And so, you know, that's part of what what the film is about, um, is just recognizing the huge history and um, significance that the Commodore 64 and uh, other Commodore machines had in in that era. Well, obviously we'll get into... I adore my 64 and uh, a bit more about the, the the film itself in a moment. But I mean, talking about the the 64 community, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it was basically, you know, local user groups were the main way that you get to meet other people that had computers. How has the Commodore 64 community evolved over the years? And what would you say kind of keeps that alive today? Was that kind of a bit of a, a rediscovery journey for you when you got back into all of this? Oh, yeah. My, my road... Uh... <laughs> back into being involved with the Commodore 64 uh, actually intersects with you because uh, it Mm. was probably 2017 um, as I was taking care of one of my newborn daughters and spending a lot of late nights uh, poking around on YouTube. um, I I caught a video that you had done about how the Commodore 64 can, can be connected to the internet. And I was really shocked by that. I'm like, wow, there's still people developing hardware and software and that's what sort of reignited my interest and passion in uh, getting involved with this with the modern day 
uh, C64 community. And mm. once I did, I was shocked. I was just floored by people around the world that are are just very much uh, – dedicated into keeping the platform alive and you know all the way from the uh you know these these huge um events where they you know demo scene events and coding events and just collecting uh collector events all over the world like canada north america you know all over europe uh, i i was just Florida. I think when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have the internet. So like what was going on on the other side of the world with Commodore was sort of unbeknownst to me. And when I sort of reengaged with everything, you know, 2017, 2018, um, I was just shocked to, to start to understand, um, the huge influence that Commodore had had on that side of the world. I had some friends who, you know, um, they were originally from Germany. So I knew that Commodore was popular over there, but that's probably all that I knew about it. (laughs) And so, but yeah, here in North America and around the world, there are just so many user groups, Facebook groups, uh, discords, like there is no shortage of community um, if you want to become involved and you want to, you know, sort of re-experience the nostalgia and love that you had for the 64, any really any retro platform, um, I, you know, I don't know if it, it, it's, it feels like it's just exploded in the last 10 years. And I don't know if it's just like people who grew up with that are now the right age <laughs> to want to revisit uh, things that they experienced in the past. But I would say in the last 10 years it's just exploded and i found the community to be extremely welcoming extremely helpful um extremely kind there's just been some true acts of kindness uh that i've received from people in the community and i've you know and i've tried to replicate that myself and um that's one great thing about it is that you know, if you have a broken machine or a piece of hardware that's not working, you want to understand how to get a certain game or piece of software working. There's just, you know, you can go on the internet, post something in a group, and five minutes later, literally five minutes later, someone's answering you and trying to trying to help you to make it happen. And so, you know, that that's really awesome. And you know, that community uh, just developed organically, and I think that that's great and sort of uh, unique. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting the love that people have for these machines. And it's interesting psychologically as well. I mean, you mentioned then about whether it's something to do with the fact that we're maybe a certain age now where we, we look back to our youth and our childhood and want to kind of recapture that. Maybe that's part of it. But I do agree with you because, I mean, I kind of got back into this whole retro thing probably around 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, I kind of saw it start to build up. But I'd agree in the last 10 years. It just seems like it's gone into overdrive. It feels like now, I mean, you know, I love the Commodore 64, love the Amiga as well. The fact that there are, you know, four or five Commodore shows happening that I go to every single year now, and there's, you know, thousands of people at these events. Mm. It is interesting to think, you know, what is it that kind of brought us all back together? I mean, do you think it is that kind of just the nostalgic aspect of it? I think it is is in part, for sure. It's There's a nostalgic factor to it, but I also think it's the community um, and the relationships that you can have over, over something, you know, that two different people enjoy. You know, um, 
like as you get older and, you know, oftentimes get married, have family, have kids, it is harder to find uh, ways to connect with people. And this just seems so natural, you know, like I love this thing. You love this thing. Hey, let's talk about it. Let's, let's help each other figure, figure this out. And uh, yeah, I just think that just opens the door. And that's just another really cool aspect um, of the community is, you know, I've met and talked to people around the world that there's no, no other way I ever would have known them. No other Mm. way I ever would have met them. And yet through this community, it's like, oh, we're like, (laughs) you know, instantly there's a brotherhood there because we have this, this, you know, this computer in our hit, in our common history. Yeah, you're right. And that's really the main reason that I go to shows because I've got all the machines at home. And if I, I attend an event and there's like, I barely even touch the machines, really, it's about the, the socializing, isn't it? And talk, meeting like-minded people. And, you know, you, you can talk to someone else in a bar or a cafe and you mentioned that, you know, oh, you're into Commodore computers. That's it. You can talk for hours. <laughs> you know, there's like a common interest there, isn't there? So, yeah, you just have friends around the world. It's incredible. Um, but, I mean, speaking of the hardware, I mean, obviously at, you know, shows and I, I imagine a lot of the, the communities and the people you visited for the film, you must have seen quite a lot of innovative and unique uses of the Commodore 64. Any, like, really cool stuff that you've seen during your research? Um, let's see. I think the thing that I've probably been most impressed with up to this point. So we've interviewed about four people for the film. And, uh, one of the things that's, that's really, uh, just stood out to me is, is Bo Zimmerman. Um, not only just because of the, of the huge collection that Bo has, um, but also just all the work he's done and some of it that I was benefiting from and didn't even realize, um, he did a lot of work on the Wi-Fi modem uh, that a lot of people use today now to connect to the internet. And he's also done a ton of work um, with BBS software and um, uh, software for uh, GIOS. And so like, uh, I just am am floored that someone who, you know, never worked at the company um, Berkeley software um, is out there developing, developing stuff for the, for GIOS and the Commodore 64 and, you know, contributing to the community in that way. And, uh, you know, we, we actually interviewed another guy, um, Leif Bloomquist, who's part of uh, the Toronto Pet Users Group, a huge Commodore group up in Canada. And he also was involved in creating one of the first Wi-Fi modems, um, mm. which I had no idea, you know, and we sat down and interviewed him and, you know, and he was talking about how his experiences with, the Commodore 64 led him, um, you know, into doing projects with NASA. He was involved with the Canada arm and now he's involved with the Osiris Rex project. And, um, you know, he credits all that to his early experiences with the 64. So maybe not so much, uh, what's really, uh, stood out to me is, you know, unique hardware projects, but the experiences that people, have been led into in the career paths they've taken because of uh, their their early involvement with the 64. Yeah, and I mean, there is so many new games coming out all the time as well. I think, you know, there's been probably more Commodore 64 games in the last five years than I remember coming out since the late 80s. And even, I don't know if you've covered this in your, in your, in your uh, documentary or you're planning to, that new um, the C64 OS 
which is like a brand new operating system, a commercial operating system for the Commodore 64? Yeah. Oh, that's that's funny that you would mention it because um, I was just talking about Leaf Bloomquist and how we had interviewed him at uh, the Toronto Pet Users group um, because they had an event that was called World of Commodore and they do that every year in December um, near Toronto. But another uh, guy who attended that was Greg Nasu, who is the, you know, the creator of C64 LOS. And mm. he gave a talk there and man, it is really impressive what he has been been able to get uh, the Commodore to do on such limited resources. And um, we did have an interview scheduled with, the, with him, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, we couldn't get it in. Um, so we are hoping, you know, if, we, if we're funded and, um, and we go on to develop the entire film, then Greg is definitely on our list to be, to be interviewed because that's had such a massive impact on the community. And it is such an amazing uh, OS that he's developed and, and continuing to, to develop. Well, let's get into the film then. So, I mean, you mentioned on your website that the, the Commodore 64 impacted the course of your life and actually influenced your decision to become a filmmaker. So how did that journey happen for you? Yeah. So, um, as I was mentioning earlier, I started out with a Breadbin C64 and that, that eventually died, which probably doesn't surprise anyone. Um, and then From overuse probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then I moved on sort of late in the game to a 64C, but that just, again, goes to show the love that people tended to develop for it. Um, you know, I think it was 90 or 91 when I bought the 64C. And what's funny was at the time, my dad had purchased, you know, um, an IBM PC. I think it was like 3000 or $3,500 for a dual floppy you know, IBM PC XT and a printer. And I would, you know, he, he, he kind of tasked me with like, okay, I, I need you to learn how to use this so I can use it. <laughs> and I was just so like underwhelmed by its capabilities and, and it's, and the fact that it was monochrome, I was like, I just don't understand why anybody would want this when, when you can have a Commodore 64. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, after high school, I kept my, my 64th C through high school. Um, and then when I went to college, um, that was right about the time that the video toaster, uh, which, you know, it, is a uh, video editing hardware that runs on an Amiga, you know, Amiga 2000 and, and other Amigas that started just exploding. Um, everybody was using it. And at my college, um, they had a studio um, where they had it installed and I spent hours and hours in there editing videos and creating graphics. And, you know, it had lightwave 3d, which, you know, I, got really far into using that and people were just like amazed at what and I was <laughs> at what the machine could do uh, especially for the price you know um, to have equipment that could do that outside of the video toaster was probably I don't know you know 60 70 80 thousand dollars and you know you could probably yeah. get a toaster and and, you know, an Amiga, I, I, sub 15,000, I think. So it was a solution for a lot of people. So my first experiences with, with filmmaking and storytelling through, um, through editing was with the video toaster. And um, after I left college, I then went on to uh, 
to my first job and they also had a video toaster system as well. And I worked on that for several years. So Commodore has like, it's always been there <laughs> in my life, I guess. I didn't expect to have such a such a long history with it. You know, and then it kind of dropped off, you know. I I, I started using PCs and and um, you know, kind of left it on the shelf for many years. But then again, you know, in 2017, uh, you know, I saw your video and it reignited my interest and I kind of thought to myself at first, well, you know, I'll just get one and, and, you know, I uh, use it and it'll be fun. And, you know, that's how it starts. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and now I, I'm looking over my left shoulder here and, and I probably have 20 or 30 on the shelf and in various states of repair. And, you know, now I have, now I have Commodore machines that I didn't have growing up like a plus four. So yep. uh, shout out to the plus four there. And, uh, you know, a pet even, and se- several Amigas, uh, you know, 1200 or 500. And, you know, part of it is, uh, I just want to experience the things that I feel like I missed out on, you know, mm. back in the day. Uh, so yeah, Commodore has always been there. And I, you know, when I was younger, I used to kind of like, this is a little weird and embarrassing, but I used to do like little music videos, you know, I would, I would play music on my, on my <laughs> cassette uh, stereo. And then I would like try to program you know, things in basic that would make things happen on screen and time and oh, nice. time with the music, you know, just for fun. So that was my first, you know, foray into editing and, and filmmaking sort of ridiculous, but <laughs> it goes. I think the fact that the, the Commodore machines were, you know, compatible with PAL and NTSC, weren't they? So you could, you know, they were really suited to doing video, weren't they? Even rudimentary video. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, that carried on, you know, right into, the Amiga days too. I remember, mm. I remember someone telling a story about how they were demoing the first version of the video toaster at this, uh, at this news station. And, you know, the engineers there were kind of like turning their noses up at it and they're like, you know, but then the uh, presenter was telling them like, Oh, this is, this is video compliant. It's not like some, uh, you know, this is NTSC signal compliant. And I think that really shocked them and, you know, mm. gave them a little bit more respect uh, for the chops that the system had. So, yeah, having, uh, having NTSC or PAL compatibility is um, has been really essential, I think, to the Commodore's success. All the Commodore yeah, I think computers. It- even over here, I mean, they were mainly used for, you know, games machines, admittedly. I think, you know, most kids at my school at one stage had an Amiga 500. But even then, I mean, I was in, um, like, the video club at school where we'd, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd do video editing on VHS to VHS machines. And then one day I told my my teacher that the, the Amiga could do video credits, you know, rolling at the end of the film. So I used to bring my Amiga 500 in mm-hmm. and then hook it up, you know, and we'd use it for titling, basically. So even at that, you know, early days, it was uh, definitely apparent that, the Amiga had a step up over other machines. Oh yeah, um, you know, at the time for doing that kind of thing, definitely. Um, but I mean, you know, your film obviously—we've talked a bit about the historical aspect there. But you—you you mentioned there that you really want to focus on the the current community of the mm-hmm. Commodore 64 as it exists today. So why have you chosen that angle instead of the you know the usual more historical mm-hmm. perspective? Well, I think there's been a lot of good uh, YouTube videos and even even some documentaries that really cover in depth the history of Commodore and all the personalities, you know, from the, from Jack Trammell, the president to other major figures uh, in Commodore, uh, the company, you know, 
but there's not a ton out there about what's really happening today. And I think that I sort of had a joy and surprise of discovering that, oh my word, there's this huge community. And I, there's a desire, you know, on my behalf to let others know about that. You know, I feel like I, you know, I have a couple of Commodore t-shirts <laughs> and wear them occasionally. And I feel like every, everywhere I go, someone will ask me, they're like, Hey, is that, is the Commodore 64? Is that like that computer from the eighties? Yep. I grew up you know, with you know, that. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I saw a guy wearing a Commodore CDTV at a service station randomly wow. about four or five years ago. Wow. Yeah. So that is very niche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, once somebody recognizes that, it's like the stories start spilling out of them. Like, oh, I used to, I used to go over to my buddy's house. We'd stay up all night playing video games and drinking Mountain Dew, you know, and it was so much fun. Mm. Or I, I used to call this BBS or, you know, I, uh, you know, we did this with it. We did that with it. And it's like you start to realize once you, you know, sort of pull the cover back, what a cultural impact the machine had. And I, I feel, you know, a bit of, of sadness recognizing um, that that's not, that's not the story that history tells. You know, if you ask, I think the average person on the street today, you know, under 35, you know, if you ask them, what are the computers that really launched the computer revolution, you know, as you understand it, they're going to say Apple. And it's not that yeah. Apple didn't have a major, um, a major hand in it. They did for sure. But I don't, you know, I would argue that the Commodore, 64 and other Commodore machines had no less, no, no less of an influence, no less of an impact. And I think it could be argued had a much greater impact, but you know, it's branding, right. And, and, you know, the winners sort of, uh, <laughs> the winners sort of write history. And so I yeah. see it in part two that the film is sort of an, of an effort to write that, invite people into the community and sort of, you know, correct history a little bit. I remember in the 90s watching a, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it was a, I think it was a three-part TV documentary series. I think it was on PBS uh, in America and it was on um, Channel 4 here in the UK called uh, Triumph of the Nerds. Mm -hmm. It was by a Robert Cringley. Yes. And it was around the time that Windows 95 came out. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down watching that and it was about the history of home computing. <laughs> and I thought, well, any moment now they're going to get to Commodore and the Amiga, it's all going to be in here. Not a single mention of it. It was all IBM, Microsoft, Apple. I remember even back then being a bit deflated, like, hang on a minute, there was a lot more happening out there than what's been covered on TV. So yes. I do think it is now. It's very good that we can cover that history, that we've got a platform there. I think that's 100% true. And yes, I have seen that documentary. It's so funny to hear you say that because that was my reaction as well. I'm like, what in the mm. world? Like no mention of Commodore at all. Like that does not seem right. And, you know, they're, they're, that is really, really prevalent. Like um, and that's a perfect example of sort of the effect that, you know, I was talking about just a little while ago. But, um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there's some stories out there. And this is another thing we cover um, with uh, one of the interviewees in the film is um, there's a story that at one point Jobs tried to to uh, sell Apple to Chuck Peddle of Commodore. He's like, yeah, we're going to be worth a lot of money. And, uh, you know, so if you give us $2 million right now, we'll sell you Apple. <laughs> Wow. And well, I mean, the impact that could have had, and I, and, you know, I think I remember, 
hearing that you know Wozniak was really embarrassed by that because they haven't they hadn't even produced a working computer yet, and Chuck Peddle was actually over there helping them with the integration. Um, of the processor um, because they really couldn't figure it out on their own. So it's amazing to think that, mm, you know, if not for the assistance of, you know, Chuck Peddle of Commodore, the Apple II might never have existed. And if Chuck had like taken, uh, taken Steve Jobs seriously, the, the course that Apple computer took as a company might have been very, very different. So yeah. It could be using a Commodore iPhone today <laughs> instead of an Apple one. Yeah. That's right. I think there is a Commodore phone out there. <laughs> I think there is actually, yeah. <laughs> Commodore Pet when I saw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, talking about people that you've, uh, you've interviewed for the film, I mean, you mentioned that there's, uh, there's four in-depth interviews you've done so far. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously you mentioned uh, Bo Zimmerman there as well. Mm-hmm. So who else have you spoken to for the, the film so far and how did you go about choosing them? Um, another really well-known personality that um, was just incredibly gracious to allow us to come and interview him was David Murray. You know, he's he's a very pop, the eight-bit guy, sorry, as he's more well-known. Um, and he was just super gracious. I I really, you know, I sort of emailed him on a lark. I did not expect that he would say yes. If 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 you watch David's channel um, at all, I just. I, I think sometimes I'm like, man, when do you sleep? Like you've got so many things going, you know, he's, <laughs> he's producing videos and he's working on the commander X 16 computer. And he's just doing so many things that I thought there's no way this guy is going to have time for us. But, you know, sort of one run, one line response was like, yeah, you know, if you're, if, I would love to be a part of getting behind an effort like that. And I think that just sums up the community as a whole. It's like, yeah, people are willing to come together uh, for for their love for this particular machine. So yeah, we we had a about about two hour interview with David and and there in his studio, and he you know we just talked all things Commodore, and he told sort of his personal inside story um, of his experience with the sixty four, and um, you know, and we went on into um, you know the games that he's developed for the sixty four, and we and he also um, he had a Max machine that he showed us, and kind of talked about how the Max was really the first sixty four. So like, yeah, it's just fascinating to. Um, to hear from uh, different people that are well-known, but maybe well-known YouTubers, but maybe they haven't really uh, told their story about the 64 in particular and to um, Mm. sort of get that from them. And then uh, Leaf Bloomquist, I mentioned, and he's part of the Toronto Pet Users Group. Um, And he had some incredible stories to tell himself about his involvement with the 64. And like I said, how it's led him into the aeronautical industry. And then um, another guy that I felt uh, very uh, honored to to get an interview from was Anthony Becker. And he is probably better known as sort of the second half of the, of the guru meditation. Um, he and Bill, Bill Winters, uh, that's an Amiga channel that they run for a number of years. But Anthony is actually a huge Commodore collector himself and has some like very uh, unique and rare Commodore hardware. One of the things being a Commodore 65 and, yeah. um, you know, that, that's another thing that I think if you've been away from, uh, the Commodore scene for, for, you know, a number of years, uh, since the eighties, you may not know about the Commodore 65, but that was a prototype that Commodore developed that was sort of supposed to be the successor, uh, 
to the 64 in a lot of ways and, and much more capable, you know, um, and Anthony actually, you know, took it out and, and showed it to us. And, and, uh, you know, some of those, uh, prototypes, which I'm not sure, I don't think anybody's sure, but I think maybe there's only 200 or so, or even less in existence. Um, you know, they sold for, you know, 30, 40, even $80,000 or more. So yeah. just ultra, <laughs> ultra rare stuff uh that that and, and i think commodore was cool. selling them at their fire sale when they went bankrupt for about 20 dollars <laughs> back then i think yep. yeah yep. <laughs> if i remember right uh anthony related that he he bought one again sort of on a lark he heard it about it tangentially and i think he paid like 40 dollars which is mm. just just crazy and so yeah i mean i have been a filmmaker for about 25 years and you know i really love getting those sorts of stories out of people that you're just not otherwise going to hear and hearing about their history with the machine and why it means so much to them and how it influenced their life well how did you approach um obviously so far you know that this, this section of the movie that you've made so far before the, the funding is completed how are you approaching the the storytelling aspect of the film and the narrative around the the interviews well, I, I really think my approach could just be summed up as storytelling, um, you know, and it's based on, you know, the person's particular intersection with the Commodore community. You know, you take Anthony, for example, he has a huge collection. So, you know, during our time with him, we, we sat down first and like heard his whole story. How did you, how did you get a 64? What, you know, what, what path did things take after that? You know, what led you into, you know, your involvement with Amiga stuff? And then, you know, sort of taking a tour of their collection and being able to see some of the ultra rare and just fun things that, that they have. Anthony in particular has, has a lot of unusual, stuff early commodore stuff he has a a commodore typewriter and some adding machines and um you know back when commodore was doing those things but he also has like some really weird and wonderful um products that were created after the commodore's uh you know uh, branding rights were sold off to other companies. So he has like an MP3 player that's <laughs> branded as a Commodore and wow. some other <laughs> weird and wacky things that he's, he's acquired over time. And, you know, we, we sort of took that same approach with, with Bo, although, you know, touring Bo's collection would probably, <laughs> probably be, you know, a 12 hour documentary in and of itself. His collection <laughs> is so huge and it's so but it's so well curated and you can ask you can ask him about any machine in that room and he just he's just intimately familiar with it and um you know again we also sat down with Bo and heard his story and like you know what kicked this off for you why 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 do you, are you just so passionate about these machines? What do they mean to you? And I think, you know, for people that did grow up with the 64, hearing hearing that stuff just, again, makes them feel a sense of community, a sense of camaraderie. And, you know, like, hey, I wasn't the only one. Because I think, you know, growing up in the 80s, we we're all kind of isolated from each other. But you you asked yeah. earlier what what's made things ignite. Uh, you know, reignite the community. Well, the internet <laughs> and the fact mm-hmm. that we can, we, that now there's this, you know, like sort of virtual space to gather and, and, and discover that like, oh, well, this wasn't just 
sort of a thing where I lived. Like this was this was a thing in Germany and Poland and Japan and you know and in South America and all over the world. And and you know it's just really shocking to find out how huge the community is. I mean, if the, you know when the crowdfunder finishes, is that kind of a plan to explore a bit more of the global essence of the the Commodore sixty four community and travel and interview people around the world? Yeah, unfortunately. The, the biggest expense in the production of the film is, of course, well, two things, uh, time and money, right? Every single film out there would like to have more time. And they'd like to have more money. Um, and, you know, it, what we can or can't do will definitely be controlled by the budget. You know, we had to really spend a lot of time analyzing, like, what is realistic to raise, number one. And number two what's realistic in terms of time because we don't want it to be, you know, eight years before this thing comes out. So we tried yeah. to scale those things in a way that wasn't going to doom the project to failure at the start. Cause I think, you know, it's a mistake a lot of films make is, you know, they have a grandiose idea of what they can do and what they can cover. And then, you know, the budget is, is way too high and it doesn't get funded or, you know, it does get funded and it's a massive project that, you know, um, you know, that would take uh, years and years to complete when you're talking about a small team of people. So, um, yeah, I think definitely what we're able to do, while, while we are focusing on North America and Canada, what we're able to do in the other um, areas of the world that we might be able to feature will definitely be influenced by the amount of funding that we bring in. And we're going, you know, mm -hmm. our intention is to do the most we can with the resources that we have, you know, recognizing that everybody involved has full-time jobs. I have a full-time job and the other three uh, people on the team also have full-time jobs. So, you know, there's a limit uh, to what we can do. And so we want to keep, we want to keep the film within a realistic scope. Yeah, and I think that's really wise to do as well. It's um, you know, you, you've got an idea of what you want it to be like, and uh, yeah, keeping things realistic and making sure that you know you're de delivering something in a reasonable time frame. Mm -hmm. I think is very important. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I mean, you, you've put this ten minute teaser mm -hmm. up on YouTube that's um, already had nearly seventy thousand views, mm -hmm. and I'm looking through the comments. Everyone is just saying how incredible it looks, mm -hmm. and they're so hyped for it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, have you, have you had a really good reaction to this so far? Oh, I I think the ten minute preview um really shocked me you know mm. i was like thinking to myself uh if it gets five thousand views that'll be like doing doing in the first month that'll like be doing great and you know we'll probably you know, we will go on if we if we get that much if we don't then i really have to think about it and i think in the first day or two it got five thousand views and i was like wow and then it just kept accelerating more and more and more and um you know i have to credit one of the guys from from the toronto pet users group he did a lot to just promote promote that preview around the different user groups and i think that that really did have a huge impact on people getting exposed to it and seeing it and of course um, I was also um, talking about it and promoting it on some of the major Facebook groups. But yeah, I even so, even with all that, you can never know. You know, you can have a feeling that I think people would be interested and excited about this. But until you actually put something out there, you can't know. And I think it was really important in my mind to like produce something small first so people can see that you're serious about it and the quality level of it. And you know, that, 
this is something that they can feel good about getting behind. And so, yeah, I was really encouraged by by the number of views on the 10-minute preview. Yeah, and I think people will watch that and they'll see the really high production values as well. I mean, it really shows that you've got, you know, decades of experience mm. of making movies. Um, but so this is a crowdfund that's literally just launched a couple of days ago when this episode comes out. Um, you've got around 26 days left, but obviously um, with any of these campaigns, it's either, you know, either it gets backed or it doesn't happen is generally the case. Mm. So I would encourage anyone that's watched that teaser and wants to support this. And I think it is really important that people do get behind this because it is a celebration of the community a celebration of us so I'd love to see this come to fruition um, you've chosen a platform called uh, Seed and Spark mm-hmm. for this so tell us why you chose that and kind of how this kind of works then yeah we talk about that a little bit on our blog on um, idormy64film.com you know initially I was thinking like okay we'll use Kickstarter because like hey that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room and everybody uses Kickstarter and it's not to not Kickstarter at all but I think part of my concern was we would get sort of lost in the ocean of projects that that is Kickstarter and mm. um you know I began looking around for other crowdfunding sites and there were a lot of things that were appealing about Seed and Spark um I think number one is just their success rate. You know, their 82% of projects um, are successfully funded. And I think Kickstarter is, is maybe down around 30%, I think. Don't don't quote me on that. but um, Sounds believable. Yeah, yeah. As I looked into Seed and Spark more, they were a lot more about giving you guidance and uh, helping you to understand how to scale your project properly, you know, having realistic funding goals and the things that you need to do to, um, you know, have a successful campaign rather than, you know, just sort of taking an hour to to fill out a web form and then posting it, (laughs) which they will not allow you to do, which I think is great. You have to meet certain, certain criteria with them. They have to review it. And, um, you know, you have to demonstrate that you have a plan uh, to make this happen. So um, I really respect that a lot. And they were, you know, honestly, all of their advice and guidance has proven to be true up to this point. So they specifically focus on on film projects. They they do some other, um, you know, projects that are related but mostly most of the projects on there are independent films so because Mm. of that yeah we decided that we were going to cast our lot with seed and spark and the page looks incredible i mean it's all really simple to kind of see what you get for your money and you're asking for twenty five thousand dollars for the production which i think is very reasonable Mm. i mean i've seen a lot of these uh, movies go for a lot more money than that so i think that's a a easily achievable goal Mm. um and you of course, like any crowdfunding, you've got some great incentives as well. I mean, can you talk us through a few of uh, a few of the different tiers and what people can get? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we did try to stay away from physical incentives, even though that that's a great way to go. Um, it does put quite a dent in the budget sometimes, and yeah, definitely, we're trying to keep our budget. Uh, lean and 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 do things wisely, but yeah, there's a lot of incentives on there. You can get a, sort of a digital badge that shows that you supported the campaign at a certain level. Um, at another level, you can get uh, you'll receive a digital movie poster for the film, and then as you get up into the higher tiers, you can uh, get an associate producer status or be invited to a preview 
uh, an online preview of the film and even uh, be allowed to have some input into some of the drafts. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to intersect with the film and be involved. And I think that's just a reflection of, of, you know, the ethos that the community has. We wanted to bring that into uh, the development of the film. And I think the name just sums it up perfectly as well. Um, did it take a while to come up with that? I adore my 64. No. <laughs> um, the, the funny thing about that is, as you probably, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners know, I adore my 64 was kind of a campaign, slog- uh, campaign slogan back in the 80s for the Commodore 64. And yeah. There's a song out there. I won't, I won't try to... I won't try to sing it or anything. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> that should be a tear on your crowd. Yeah, there you, you go. Get to sing it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was definitely a uh, promotional uh, vehicle that they used back then. But how? But how perfect, you know, uh, yeah. for the film and and yeah, it it didn't take long to come up with it. Yeah, well, I think it fits perfectly. Um, I mean, what are you kind of hoping that viewers will take away from the documentary after they watch it? Well, I think the number one thing that I hope um, people take away is a a decision to get involved with it on some level. Mm. Like maybe it's only, you know, uh, I'm going to download Vice, you know, a a PC emulator of the Commodore to, to my machine and enjoy some of the games that I used to play when I was younger and I'm going to introduce my kids to it. I've, you know, that's been a thing for me is like, um, you know, introducing, you know, some of my kids to like, Hey, this is, this is what I grew up with, you know, like put down your tablet for a second (laughs) and come check this out. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun interacting with them and, and their curiosity speaks. you know, I've, I've, I've taught my daughter some basic programming on it and, 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 you know, that's just, that's just skills that you can use throughout the rest of your life. And so, yeah, I hope that people's interest is ignited and they re-engage with, with the 64 and the community that exists out there, you know, on whatever level um, is right for them. You know, um, there are some people that are like majorly into repair and they can, you know, they know how to do soldering and all that, that sort of stuff. And, but, and there's other people that are way far into coding and developing hardware and software. And then there's just people who like, wow, I'd like to have a 64 and just play the games that I had with it before. And, you know, you can still go on eBay today and, 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 and buy one and bring it home and like relive all the joy. I love that cross-generational thing you mentioned there as well. I mean, I'm looking at the uh, 10-minute teaser on YouTube. One of the top comments on there is, I'm a Zoomer, but I've got to respect what the Commodore 64 did for gaming and tech, legendary stuff. So I think there is an interest there beyond, you know, those of us who just had it back in the day. And obviously, you know, it's a machine that left an impact on, you know, millions of people and continues to today. So, um, Jeff, I wish you all the best with this. Obviously, I'm going to link up the the, uh, Seed and Spark crowdfunder right at the top of our show notes so people can click straight through. I encourage anyone that wants to see a, a celebration of the Commodore 64 and its legacy to uh, support this project because it looks just incredible. Watch the teaser over the weekend and uh, back this if you if you want to see the full thing. Um, like I said, don't leave it right till the last minute because, you know, these things do go by pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, having run a Kickstarter myself, mm-hmm. the amount of people that contacted me about a month later going, damn, I missed it. Oh. Can I still get involved? Back this while it's on. So um, I'll link it up right at the top of our show notes. And uh, Jeff, it's incredible to, uh, to see your work on this so far and uh, I really hope you can take this further. All the best with it. Thank you very much. It's, it's truly an honor to be here.